Um, I'm so pleased to be here. My name is Sasha Skoblik. I'm the editor of the Aspen Idea Magazine, uh, the magazine of the Aspen Institute. Last year, I had the great privilege of moderating a discussion with Ann Mosley, uh, your moderator today. She is a vice president at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, where she is in charge of philanthropy and volunteerism. She has 20 years of experience in the field of philanthropy and community advocacy, and she'll be introducing our featured speaker, who is a professor of behavioral, not behavioral economics, but just economics, I think, at Harvard University, Sentil Molithanian. Thanks. Thank you so much, Sasha. Um, well, welcome, everybody. Can you hear me OK? No? OK. Hello? OK, am I on now? Great, OK. Welcome, welcome. Well, um, first of all, thanks for coming. Uh, we all know what happens on voter turnout when it rains. And so thanks for showing up and being present here. Um, as we sort of go into the conversation about behavioral economics, I just want to do a quick level set and, um, and just kind of remind us. You'll hear a lot more from Sendel. We're going to be uh, fortunate to have a mini tutorial about behavioral economics and how it can be applied for social, um, addressing social challenges. But just I want to remind us that at its very kind of core, behavioral economics is about taking into account cognitive, social, and emotional, don't be scared of thunder, factors taking those factors into the decision-making process for people and institutions. Really understanding, we all sort of grew up, when I remember taking my economics classes, a lot of it was based on that people and decisions are all based on rational behavior. Um, what Sundell's going to talk about is some new thinking around this area. Now, for the Kellogg Foundation, I was fortunate to help lead with a team a new portfolio on family economic security. And um, the Kellogg Foundation, which was created in 1929 by Mr. Kellogg, known for his cereal making, but back at that time, he set aside $60 million focused on the health, happiness, and well-being of children. Fast forward 80 years later, we still struggle every day. How do we help um, break down the social barriers that hold children and families back? And so when I had the chance to meet Sendel um, at the Kellogg Foundation, we brought him in trying to learn about, in his team, about behavioral economics because we know that they're not, there's not silver bullets out there when you tackle issues like poverty or education reform. What we found was really helpful from um, getting, uh, learning more about a, a behavioral economics frame was the ability to learn how to ask better questions. So with that said, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Sendel Mullanathan. Sendel um, is senior, has been senior advisor to the Department of Treasury and Office of Management um, and Budget as a behavioral economist, first time ever. He is also a professor of economics at Harvard. He was the youngest recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award. Um, in addition to all of this and many other things, um, Sendel is the co-founder of Ideas 42. And Ideas 42, um, at its basic definition, is a network of really incredibly smart, diverse thinkers and, um, and academics trying to bring a behavioral economics frame to some of the most challenging social issues. And one of the things that um, you'll hear more, Sunil's going to give a presentation, but what you'll also, I, I would encourage you to think about in the questions and answers, not only what he brings to you in terms of content and ideas, what I also love about Sundal is how he does it, 
how he shares and applies what he and his team have worked upon. And so just one project briefly that he has been um, sparked with the Department of Health and Human Services is working specifically with the Administration for Children and Families to look at the whole range of programs that they do and how they might take a lens of behavioral economics to take a step back and think about the conditions and the social factors, the cognitive factors of the people that they're trying to serve to try to have better results for children and families. So with that said, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Sundel Mullenothan. Thanks, Ann. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be using some slides because I have some pictures. So if you in the middle can't see over there, you might want to move. I hope that's not too much of an inconvenience, but I think the pictures will make it worthwhile. So this was going to be my... Um, <clears throat> This was going to be my um, opening slide, but then I worried that uh, this would appear too uh, naively optimistic, so I decided to go with uh, this slide. Um, just in, in a capsule, behavioral economics really is about psychology being applied to social problems. And in a nutshell, I guess I'd say psychology tells us people are complicated, and psychology itself is complicated. So... In this short time I have, I'm not going to be able to tell you everything about behavioral economics, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a snapshot of some of the fun ideas and some of the profound implications these fun ideas can have. So let me start with one which I hope you'll all be able to relate to. I bet all of you have a friend who texts and drives or talks on the cell phone and drives. If not you, maybe somebody you care about. So let me tell you about an interesting um, uh, program. You can send... Uh, your friend's email address and um, their cell phone number to this uh, organization. And what they do is they'll send your friend a, um, a link to a website. And when your friend, this is, this is the website you can see up there, when your friend clicks on that link, it'll be, it'll be coming from you and it'll say, here's a video of driving. And when your friend clicks on that link, here's what they see. Let me see if I can do it. Well... What could be worse than rain? Let's just try this. Now, this is an interesting video for a variety of reasons. One, it, um, to me it talks a little bit about one of the most profound implications of behavioral economics, which it's e easy for economists to overlook which is that attention is limited. That we normally think of having limited resources like money or time, but we rarely think of the limits we have on our attention. And that's very clear when we drive. It also illustrates how it's not just the data that matters. Telling your friend that there are X many crashes every uh, week on the roads doesn't matter nearly as much as bringing to their attention something very salient. That person who receives that video, next time they think of texting while driving, Odds are they'll remember that experience. It's vivid. It's evocative. Okay? Let me come back to that in a little bit and talk about what it might matter, but hold that in your mind for a little bit that attention is limited. I want to try and illustrate another principle that attention is limited, playing a little fun game with you. Um, let's see if you guys can do this well. What I want you to do is I'm going to put objects on the screen, like this one, and I just want you to name the color of those objects with me. Can you guys do that? Let's try this one together. Black. Black. 
Now, this one is a very interesting one. Notice your attention wasn't, maybe the thunder was distracting you. But other than the thunder, there's something else that was distracting you, naming the color of this object. The letters B-L-U-E. Because there's a part of your mind that wanted to say blue. I saw many of you resisted. Good job. But I want to use this to illustrate something really, really important. We don't always control our attention. So those are two principles I want you to carry forward, which is attention is limited, and it's not always something we can control. Okay? Let me show you another principle of behavioral economics that I think is very, very important. Um, this, this, to me, illustrates the sort of profound, uh, what would I call it, inconsistency of man. I'm sure women too, but there are no men in this, women in this photo. Did these people want a workout? Some data suggests they do, 24-hour fitness. Other data, taking the escalator, suggests they don't. So which is it? Do they want to work out or do they not want to work out? Now, this inconsistency of preference is really basic, and we all know it in ourselves. I'll give you an example. What time did you put the alarm clock at this morning? No, 6.30, good. What time did you actually wake up? Now, there's something called the snooze button. Now, what is the snooze button doing? At 11 p.m. or 10 or 3 a.m., whenever you went to sleep, you had lofty aspirations. I'm going to wake up at 6, I'm going to go for a jog. Then you went to sleep. At 6, 6 a.m. self had different goals, like sleep a little more. So 6 a.m. self hits the snooze button, and then 6.05 self is angry at 6 a.m. self and at 11 p.m. self and hits the snooze button again. And all this continues. So what is the deep preference you have? Do you want to wake up at 6 or not want to wake up at 6? So that's a very personal example, but you'll see there are examples like this throughout your life. Do you want to save more? Well, in a way you do. But on the other hand, there's that very nice upgrade on the car when you go to look at it that seems really useful and seems really interesting. It's just 2000 Maybe it'll come out of something else. Do you want to be friendly to your kids, nice and warm to your kids? Of course you do. But on the other hand, in the moment, you're angry. You're angry at your boss, and you snap at your kids. Did you want to snap at your kids, or did you want to be a good parent? So these are the inconsistencies of behavior where the mo in the moment we may act in one way, but our preferences may be something altogether different. Think of how basic that is. We're so used to looking at actions and inferring intent. If somebody doesn't save, that must mean they don't want to save. So we have to teach them something. We have to give them financial literacy, something to teach them to save. In this perspective, maybe they already want to save, and they just have difficulty translating that want into action. All of this is useful because it helps us understand the policies and programs we design. I'll give you an example with the snooze button, which I think is very interesting. This was designed by the MIT Media Lab. This is, an, this is what I call a great self-control device. Um, <clears throat> this is, um, other than the name, which I find completely objectionable, I don't know who came up with this name. This is, as you can all read, this is basically an alarm clock. When you hit the snooze button, it rolls off, and it goes in an arbitrary direction and hides somewhere. And then when it goes off next time, you've got to go and find this stupid thing and hit the snooze button again. And by then, you're awake. And, you know, I don't know if you've been to many of these other uh, uh, talks on innovativeness and all of that, but as you all know, Japan does a much better job than anything the U.S. will ever do. So the Japanese have improved on this. They have one where there's a little helicopter. It shoots up into the sky. <laughs> and you've got to stand up and... 
anyway. You can buy these. They're, they're really quite good. But what is this doing? Notice what Snoo- uh, Clocky is doing. Is it's advantaging one self over the other. It's giving an advantage to the 11 p.m. self that wanted to wake up early and preventing 6 a.m. self from exercising its deep desire to sleep just five more minutes. We can do that in other places. Here's a practical example where that's particularly valuable. We, um, we did a... Um, savings is something that I think is really important in every part of the world when you think about poverty or even middle-class America. So when we think about savings, there's a lot that goes on. There's the intention-to-action divide. You want to save, but you don't manage to. There's also attention. It's very hard to remember to save. What does that mean? You can remember to go to the dentist, but remembering to save, it just means remembering to consume a little less. So what we did in this experiment was, when I say experiment, this was working with the uh, four, uh, three large banks around the world. They had clients who were interested in savings. And what we did was we designed a little product for them. And the way the product worked was when you came in, you said, I would like to save this much. And they said, okay, great. And, I, and I'll deposit this much every month, fine. And then what they did was they tracked, did you make that deposit? And if you didn't, they sent you a little reminder, often with a text message reminder. That's trivial. If you think in the scale of savings programs, big subsidies, big whatever, a little text message reminder is nothing at all. Here's a surprising fact. That text message reminder had a 6% effect on savings. 6%. That's, that's nothing. And so that's the lesson that we're getting as we go out into the world and apply these principles. This is just one example. I could go through many others. But that these applications of behavioral economics, when we crack the right psychology, the effects can be very, very big. Let me give you a few other examples um, within the domain of savings. <clears throat> Another example is 401k savings, retirement savings. There was a large debate in the 80s and 90s about how can we get Americans to save more? Financial literacy, maybe teach some stuff. Maybe it's give a bigger subsidy to retirement savings. Maybe the problem is social security exists so people know they don't have to save. We can debate this all day. There was a really, really interesting experiment that happened at the end of the 90s that changed, I think, the way we all thought about savings. Here was the experiment. Normally when you go into a firm, they give you a piece of paper that says, would you like to sign up for a 401k? If so, put the amount here. Check this box, sign here, turn it in. This firm decided to change that, and they made it so that you got a form that said something different. It said, would you like to sign up for a 401k? If so, and you would like to sign up at 2%, do nothing. If you'd like to not sign up, check this box and sign here. Or if you'd like to sign up at a different level, check this box and sign here. Okay, the difference in transaction costs between checking and not checking a box is minuscule. What they found was Three years after they instituted this change, the difference between employees who started under automatic enrollment, where the default was you had to check a box, versus non-automatic enrollment, was 40%. 80% of the people under automatic enrollment were in a 401k, and only 40% in the non-automatic enrollment were in the 401k. Think of how big that is. Why were we debating subsidies? Why were we debating all of these things when you can move 40% of the entire population to save through something so small? Now, there are a lot of issues that arise there. And I'm not saying that's a panacea. I'm not suge- suggesting we should just go institute policies like that. But what it tells you is the levers we often focus on might be the least effective, the wrong levers, because we didn't understand the psychological blockage of that behavior. The, second pr- the, the next stage of our thinking in applic- applying these things was to take one level, one step deeper, which is to say, let's put aside policies for a second Let's understand the problem first. As Anne was saying, let's see if we're asking the right questions. 
So we spent a lot of time as a group thinking about poverty. So I'm going to go through two examples today. One of them will be about poverty. And what I want to tell you about is a story, uh, a fictional story that's based actually on um, quite a few examples that we've encountered. And anyone who works in poverty will have encountered examples close to this every day. So this is the story of Linda. Linda drives every day to work. And she has a job. Uh, she's putting between two jobs where she's getting 30 hours in one and 20 hours in the other. And uh, her car is pretty essential for her to be able to make it to both of these jobs and to pick up her kids on time and take them back uh, to home where her, grandmother, uh, where her mother looks after them. One day, unexpectedly, Linda's car breaks down. So now she's got to decide what is she going to do with the car. She takes it to the mechanic. The mechanic says it's going to cost $400. Linda doesn't have $400 in the bank account. So Linda now has to make a trade-off. As economists, we understand trade-offs. The $400 has to come from somewhere. But where is it going to come from? She doesn't have a liquid savings account. So looking at all her options, Linda is now in a quite a difficult state. This is not the same trade-off as you might make between a blue sweater and a yellow sweater. Linda has to decide one of a set of painful options. In the end, going through everything, she's thinking about where will the money come, where will the money come from. At work, she's distracted by it. Her boss gives her some instructions, and um, she honestly just didn't hear them. So she does that job badly, and then her boss is angry at her. Now she's annoyed, she's been yelled at, and she still doesn't know where the money's going to come from. At the end of this experience, when she goes to pick up her kids, she snaps at her kids. And... Okay, all that at the end of it, she decides, okay, that my best option is a payday loan. I'm going to take a payday loan because that will give me the $400 I need now to fix the car. Because without the car, I can't get the work. Without the work, I'm not going to get more money. Now she takes the payday loan. What's the downside of the payday loan? If you guys don't know what this is, this is an option to get a loan against future income, your next paycheck, but it comes at a very high interest rate. So she's kicked the problem forward. She solved the problem today, but in two weeks, when the payday loan comes due, she now owes 400 plus another 50. Okay, so that's Linda's story. I want to understand Linda's story. And to understand it, I want to argue we really misdiagnose Linda's story. We think of Linda's problem as having something to do with money or poverty. And I want to argue it doesn't. And to do that, let me show you an interesting experiment we ran. So we brought a bunch of undergraduates and asked them to do a little word search experiment. Okay, this is the word search. Find the word street. Find the word tree, find the word picture. And they were rewarded for how quickly they found the word tree in the word. I want to focus on the second word in this list, tree. How quickly did they find the word tree? Why do I want to focus on that? Because half the subjects were given word searches like this. The other half were given word searches like this. Notice the word tree, cloud, lamp. Every other word stays the same. But the alternating words have now been changed from street to cake, from picture to donut. Okay, hopefully you see where I'm going. Some of our subjects were non-dieters. Non-dieters, they found the word tree as quickly in both cases. Dieters, on the other hand, did much worse in finding the word tree if they just saw the word cake than if they just saw the word street. I have to put this up because uh, there's the word cake, because my student loves this graph. Um, it's as if the word cake got them to start thinking about cake, which made them much slower on this task. It's a little bit like the dieters were having a cell phone ringing while driving. But moving into a more profound example, think of Linda, who was not able to listen to what her employer was saying, 
because she was still thinking about where would her payday, where, where would her $400 come from? And notice how this is related to the task I had you perform where you couldn't as easily say the word red because you were seeing blue. This is about divided attention. And think about it from an economics point of view. We would say Linda is not just taxed $400 by having the car break down. She's also having her attention being taxed by the task of figuring out where will the $400 come from. So it's not just on the economic domain that Linda is suffering some form of scarcity. In the psychic domain of attention, she's also performing some form of scarcity. And this was very useful for us. Notice Linda's problem is not that different from the problems we all have. If we've had a very tough day at work, we also find it much harder not to snap at our children. Linda has a tough day at work much more often than we do. Here's another example which I really like. Do you all know what Family Feud is? This is the most interesting game show on television. I'm not kidding. It's, it's fascinating because it solves the quiz show problem of how am I going to have a quiz show that people can watch who don't even know anything? And the way you have it is you ask a question like name a big animal with a small tail and the answer that's correct is not truth but instead it's what we surveyed 100 people. What was the most common answer they said? So you don't have to be right. You just have to be equally wrong as everybody else. <laughs> okay, so we took this family feud game. By the way, here are a few in case you were curious. Um, <clears throat> here are the, some of the more common answers. We took um, family feud and decided... And this is an audacious claim, but we think we can recreate poverty in the lab. So we took a bunch of Princeton undergraduates and had them play Family Feud. And here's how they did it. Half of them were made rich in the game of Family Feud. What that meant is they were going to play many rounds, and they had 50 seconds per round, which is actually quite a bit of time for a round of Family Feud. Others were made poor, and they only had 25 seconds. So, of course, this isn't poor. They're all Princeton undergrads. They're educated, well, as educated as they get at Princeton. The t- t- I don't, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, no, of course they're educated. More educated than at Harvard. How's that? So 25 seconds um, are the poor and the 50 seconds are the rich. Then we gave them the option. Some of them had the option, to, they just had to play the game, and some of them had the option to borrow. So they could borrow at Zero interest rate, what does borrowing mean? You get more time for this round, less time for the next round. Some of them borrowed, but at high rates, like Linda's payday loan. If they borrowed, they took one more second now, it meant two less seconds tomorrow. Think of that, a 200% round-to-round interest rate. So if you can imagine it, there are four conditions. Some people were rich, some people were poor, some people could borrow, some people couldn't. So I suspect you can't, this is poverty within Family Feud. Maybe you can't see this, so let me walk you through this. What we find is that when you make people richer, something fundamental happens. They are not just, they don't just perform better on Family Feud. They don't just earn more points, earn more money in the game. They actually respond differently to debt. Those who have more money in Family Feud, those who have more time in Family Feud, they're very sensitive to the interest rate in their borrowing. When the interest rate is high, they're less likely to borrow. The poor are completely insensitive to the interest rate. They borrow the same at 3 to 1, 2 to 1, and one, as 1 to 1. As a result, the poor in our data, in this data, the poor, if you look at how they perform when you give them the ability to borrow, they do worse. 
That's what it is on the left-hand side. Increase the interest rate, the poor just do worse and worse. How contrary to economic models? Normally, the ability to borrow, it's an extra choice. These guys, given the ability to borrow, do worse and worse. Not true of the rich. The rich, given the ability to borrow, don't do worse. This is very... This was a profound experience for me because we managed to recreate this weird behavior, the pathological behavior that people try to attribute, the payday loan borrowing, with Princeton undergrads playing Family Feud. What do we think is going on? There's a psychological concept which I think is really profound called tunneling. Tunneling is the notion that when there's scarcity, you really focus on dealing with that problem. You tunnel on that problem to solve that problem. Think about the fact that when you have a deadline and a project is due tomorrow, what do you do? You put all energies to solving that project. If a friend who you haven't seen in a long time calls, you might not even return the call and risk the wrath that they'll be annoyed at you. Big deal, this project is due tomorrow. You tunnel. And what tunneling does is it draws upon us remarkable capacities. All of us who have worked on a single project on deadline are always amazed, wow, I didn't know I could do that. Of course, there's a temptation to say, maybe I should do it more often, but that should be resisted. But I didn't know I could do that. But you know what else you do is by tunneling, you see everything within the tunnel with sharp focus. But everything outside the tunnel is dim. You don't notice it. What is a payday loan? Linda is tunneling on solving the problem now. I have to get my car fixed. Of course she should tunnel. That's what we all do facing scarcity. The payday loan is a product that looks great within the tunnel. It solves your problem in the tunnel right there. It comes at a cost outside the tunnel, but you're not looking outside the tunnel. Similarly, these Princeton undergrads, when they're playing 20-second family feud, they're like, God, I really think I can get the next one. I just need a little more time. Let me just focus on getting this. They're, fo- they're tunneling on their problem right then and there. So this is a general principle I want to point out. Scarcity, lacking something, induces us to tunnel. So that brings us com- full circle, so to speak. Examples like Linda are very, very common uh, when we think of poverty in the world. And I hope that in this short time, I've given you a sense of how we can understand those examples very differently by understanding that poverty doesn't just tax us physically. It taxes us psychically. As economists, we're used to thinking of scarce resources like physical resources, but scarce resources like attention and self-control are every bit as scarce. And one thing poverty does, and a lot of our research is showing this now, is that poverty also taxes our psychic resources, leaving fewer psychic resources to deal with all the other problems we may have in life. We think this has big implications for everything from how you design a training program to how you um, get parents involved, poor parents involved, in their children's education. You can't just go and say, I have this program, why aren't people showing up? Well, because learning about the program requires mental energy, requires attention. Making a decision to go to the program requires figuring out how it's going to fit into your calendar. Following through on that requires mental energy. All of these steps in actually going through a program requires mental resources. And as program designers, we often have slack in those dimensions, so we don't think about that we're using those resources. We would never design a training program where we charge people $10,000 because we'd say, well, look, they're poor. It'd be ridiculous to charge them $10,000. But yet we often design programs without intending to that taxes people attentionally. I'll give one small example. It's very hard when you're living an unstable life to go day to day and make sure you're going every day. It would be much nicer if you can skip a day or two. But in our training programs, we're not really that sti- Most training programs are not that instability proof. If you miss a day, the next day won't make any sense to you. 
So we're creating this situation where you have to have an enormous amount of stability to go to that training program. One day missed, the next day you're behind. What was even the point of going? Okay. Let me just close on one last thing, um, and then we'll stop on that. Just to show you how this stuff can really matter, here, here's an example from foreclosure. As many of you may know, we're, face, we're in the depth of a deep foreclosure crisis. And oftentimes, banks recognize that bar- modifying loans helps borrowers and helps the bank. If I get a better loan, I don't have to foreclose on you, etc. And the borrower is better off, but the bank, the bottom line of the bank is better off because you don't earn that much money necessarily on a foreclosure. So the investor focus is on the home. But as we've seen, the social consequences are much bigger. The borrower is juggling so many other things beyond the home. The borrower, uh, if they get foreclosed on, has social consequences beyond the home. So what I want to just do in the last few minutes I have is just to walk you through an example of how focusing on the borrower in this case could lead to a uh, a drastically different solution than focusing on the home. Let me start with a story. If you look at some foreclosed homes, uh, or about to be foreclosed homes, and you walk in, one of the things you find in these homes consistently, can you all imagine, what the, any guesses? Think in your mind what this might be. Piles of unopened mail. What, what is that? Well, it's what all of us do. Like I said, attention is a very complex thing. When you have a stinker email from your boss, it's a little hard to open that email. Similarly, it's a little hard to open this letter which probably tells you you're going to be foreclosed upon. And many people just start to hide. They have a bunch of bills that are unpaid. People are harassing them or collecting. They just stop connecting. So you can't even get through to the borrower to tell them what I want to do is to modify the loan. So let me walk you through one example of this. What this means is that if we take a narrow investor focus, the logic of foreclosure can be too appealing. So let's suppose we have three options. We foreclose. And let's think of a loan that's $400,000. That might net the investor 460000 It's a 15% rate of return. They can try and modify the loan, but because a lot, they can't reach a lot of people, and when they reach the people, uh, they're still unstable at its core. Half of them may end up redefaulting. What you end up with is you make less. You make 440 on net. So a lot of homes end up being foreclosed because 440 is less than 460 That's as simple as that. Here's another strategy. Let's not focus on the loan. Let's focus on the borrower. Let's ask ourselves, given that this is a borrower who's under deep financial distress, can't we do a program beyond modifying the loan to get the rest of their financial life in order? That might cost us a lot of money. It costs us $20,000. And there are such programs available. Credit counseling agencies have been pretty good at some of this activity. That, net, that, that nets us 470 but minus the 20 that you've got to pay up front, that's 450 That's less than 460 so from an investor's point of view, they would choose to foreclose in this situation. What this overlooks, and I think this is the deepest lesson of behavioral economics, is that the borrower also loses. They didn't want to be foreclosed on. Normally, we think of somebody who wants to be foreclosed on as making a choice. This person didn't make a choice. They didn't even open their mail. So the loss to them is 60. So the loss to society is actually not 460. The gain to society is not 460, but 460 minus 60, 400. So if we look at social returns, 0% by foreclosing. If we do a haphazard improvement of the loan, the borrower still may lose 35. Why? We may modify the loan, they make some payments, and they default anyway. That's not good for anybody. So now we earn slightly more, but not as much. If we invest the $20,000, then you see the borrower is better off. They get to stay in their home, they get all the benefits, and the benefits of having a more stable life. The result is we earn a lower rate of return, 12%, 
in the market sense, but a much higher rate of return, 19% in the social sense. Why am I going through this example in great detail? Because I want to illustrate there's something profound here. Notice we can take a little bit of a hit from 15% to 12% on our market rate of return, but get a huge benefit on the social side. And this is something we see, we're seeing again and again consistently. Behavioral economics opens up a window in many domains from health to foreclosure where if we are willing to take a small hit on private returns, we can have a huge benefit to the end customer. Why? Because we take the entire customer perspective, not the narrow perspective, not the narrow perspective of the loan, but the entire perspective of the borrower, and now psychology matters a lot more. Okay, let me conclude here. I hope you've all gotten a sense of what I want to say. Thank you so much, Sandral. All right, so we're all, we're all experts, enough to get a good conversation going. If um, folks would like to go to the microphones and um, be prepared to just introduce yourself and have a quick question. Um, and while we're getting set up for that, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about, Sundal, you talked about the opt-in, opt-out lever, where just deciding one study back in you know, early 2000s for women, um, women who were in, uh, that were in the opt-in were at 86% enrolled with a 401k, or no, opt-out. Once they, if they had to opt out, it was 80%. If they had to sign, check the box, that was at 36%. And so just, just for now, and it's just a little box. And I'm, so I always love the example you gave of the organ donation card, because I always, you know, I check that box on my driver's license, and I'm always like, oh, God, I don't want to die. But I check the box because I want to go to heaven. Um, but, um, but there was a great lesson he had about organ donation, and I wanted to sort of, if you just maybe, we've talked a lot about education policy and education reform here. Maybe if you could speak to that opt-in, opt-out, lever, um, lessons, if you've seen any of them in education, and maybe also just share yeah. that organ story. Yeah. On education, I'll say one of the most surprising things. We've all read newspaper articles about how um, some wealthy person goes into an inner city school and says, if you all graduate high school, I'll pay for college. Now, here's an interesting fact. Any of you could do that. Now, you're all wealthy, so maybe that's not right. But even if you're not wealthy, anyone can do that because federal grant programs are more than generous enough to make that claim for all these people, but yet people don't take it up. And that's a place where we see opt-in, opt-out very drastically. Data shows that something as simple as when uh, the poor file taxes, taking that data and filling out the FAFSA form using that data for them has a dramatic impact on college enrollment. People just don't, don't it's just a complex form if you ever try and fill out a FAFSA form. And that small change in how we make people eligible, in this case, it's a pure opt-in. You know, here's the form. It's filled out. Now you're eligible. You have this, you know, the grant programs has been shown to have a very big effect. Thank you. And coming from um, the state of Michigan where I don't know how many of you have heard about the uh, program called the Kalamazoo Promise. In Kalamazoo, Michigan, as an economic development strategy, literally any child that graduates from high school um, gets a full ride to um, any two- or four-year institution in the state of Michigan. And we have huge drop-off numbers because they can have the grades. But the barriers like the forms or the support services um, keeps the uptake of that program, a full-paid program, um, at less than 33%. Less than a third of the kids that can take advantage of it don't. And it's really kids of color and low income that, get broken, that don't get past that hurdle. And so just thinking about how our systems and our institutions can be more responsive and in touch with the people and the goals that they're meant to serve. Um, I think so, the gentleman uh, can I say one quick thing about Absolutely. that, which is it's often easy to think about this population as them. Here's a useful heuristic you can have. FAFSA forms are as complicated 
as Windows is for you. So, you know, when you start Windows and you start installing that thing and there are all these questions, you just, what is this stuff? And in some sense, that complexity, then that puts you off. You know, imagine reading the um, brochure, not the brochure, the instruction manual that comes from your digital camera. I don't know how many have ever read that, but, you know, a FAFSA form is about the same order of magnitude, if you can put that in the same perspective. Great. And gentlemen over here. Thank you. Uh, David Langstaff. I'm uh, from Washington. Fascinating research, and I'm interested in two elements to it, which is you apply it to individuals, Linda and others. The question is whether you can take the same research and thinking and apply it to cultures, societies, communities, where you're getting group behavior, not just individual behavior. And then if so, and you might, I mean, I'd just be interested in, in, in the trade-offs we seem to be making now, which is un, an unwillingness to face some of the financial issues as a country, uh, as, a, as, a, as a globe, some of the, the, the longer-term issues of global, global climate change and such. And so then the question becomes, well, how, how can you now take what you understand to actually change behavior? And before you, I'm going to give you time to come up with a brilliant answer, uh, but I'm going to add to the question because I love that question, is as you're um, answering, maybe might be perhaps tiered, to think about the changing demographics we're experiencing as a country and thinking about also um, really a clear thoughts around race and gender and class um, as you answer. Yeah, I think that, that understanding the importance of culture and groups is pretty big, and I have two different answers to it. One is the group is often a sum of the individual. And often, when we fail to understand the individual, we attribute it to the group. There was an old literature called The Culture of Poverty, which tried to attribute behavior of the poor to the culture of the poor. Our interpretation is it's nothing to do with the culture of the poor. Anyone could have that. So some cultural explanations I would actually push back on. The flip side is we're also seeing some really interesting new data on the power of culture and stereotypes. The experiments that I find most intriguing here are by Claude Steele and his colleagues and those that have followed up on him, where if you bring in, say, and I'll give you the best example. This is the most intriguing. You bring in an Asian-American woman into the lab who's a math PhD student at Yale or a math graduate student at Yale, and you ask them to do a bunch of math problems. Right before you, they do the math problems, half of them are asked, what's your gender? And half of them are asked, what's your race? That's it. And you find big differences in performance on these math problems. Being reminded that you're Asian American boosts performance because we're all very good at math. That, that's not just a stereotype. It's <laughs> but being reminded you're a woman reduces performance relative to baseline. That's pretty profound. It's not just the culture as it affects us. We are very malleable people. And imposing a stereotype on us can actually affect our own behavior and our preferences. We've found when you give IQ-like tests to the poor, asking them a financial question before reduces performance on the IQ test. So there's a lot of priming and identity-type issues that are really basic that we're just starting to understand a little bit. Great. Gentleman over here. Uh, Yes, sort of building on the, on the previous question, the, the physical crisis has been front and center in, in many of the sessions here this week, and we have a, a sort There's of... There's a fiscal crisis going on? Is that... Maybe you want yeah, to only for other people. Oh. Um, and uh, it, it, it's similar to the sort of payday loan where, I mean, are, are, we, are we tunneling? I mean, we've promised ourselves $63, billion, $63 trillion of entitlements that we can't afford. Everybody knows that. Do you think there's some way to reframe the question... Uh, using some of the tools of behavioral economics so that the, the sort of fear surrounding 
some kind of resolution of, of this social contract could be reduced and people would be happier with the trade-off they make because we're kind of deadlocked now. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. I, I wish I could give you an answer like now. Maybe in like 30 seconds I'll have an answer for you on how we can solve the fiscal crisis. No, but I think that the point you raise that it's what it's related to at a more fundamental level is that so many of the choices we make we don't realize are guided by our psychologies. So one reason, when the, you've said it perfectly well, the fiscal crisis induces a tunnel. And it induces a tunnel intertemporally, but it also induces to tunnel away from a variety of other problems that were probably also equally important. And, you know, I don't know what to say except, I will say one thing, which is the exciting aspect of social science right now is that it is becoming more and more applicable. What makes this work exciting for me is that it has some application. That's why I started with the slide that said significantly better make the world. But what we've also learned in that is that we should avoid, as Anne was saying, magic bullets. We should be looking for recognizing that good solutions will take quite a bit of time to get to. So just taking the fiscal crisis example, we don't even right now have a great understanding of consumer confidence. What is it? How do we measure it? What, is, what determines it? So I would say let's tackle those fundamental problems and really make headway so when the next crisis comes, hopefully not too soon, but it will be coming, we will be co approaching it with a better thing. I don't know if that... Thank you. Over here. Thank you. Um, I'm Lauren Cobb from the University of Colorado. I would like to ask a question about political corruption. I've been working as a consultant for 16 years in Latin America uh, with countries on problems like corruption. That's one of the worst problems. And most people down there, whether they're in government or out of government, believe that corruption is a moral issue. You weren't educated correctly. You didn't go to the right, you didn't, weren't disciplined properly, something. I always argue that it's a question of incentives that the bureaucrats and the legislators and the judges have the wrong structure of incentives around them, and, and the incentives, in fact, would corrupt an angel. Um, <clears throat> they need to restructure the way um, these jobs um, are facing their incentives. For example, policemen are only paid 10% of what it takes to, to put groceries on the table. Um, Higher-level bureaucrats don't compete for jobs, they go to the political party of the president and they pay a fee to get a job. That's nuts. So I wonder if there's some way you could bring corruption into the lab of behavioral economics in just the way that you've solved some other problems. We probably won't fund that project. <laughs> uh, let me say quickly, I would add, I agree with you completely, and I would add one thing besides intensives, which is... Um, people often underappreciate how complex even moral preferences are. So I'll give you an example exactly from what you just said. Say I'm a person who took a job as a middle-level bureaucrat, and that's what I wanted to do, but I had to pay a large bribe to get it. Now, when I take bribes, am I engaging in corruption, or am I doing the you know, unfortunate thing that I've got to do to make up for the money I had to pay to get the job? And when people try and synthesize these type of games in the lab you can get that type of behavior. You're not, you're, you're, you're justifying your action. You're not saying I'm this angel, but you certainly are not thinking of yourself as any devil. You're being pragmatic. It's unfortunate that you've got to do it. So. Great. Gentleman over here. I'm Kevin Slavin. I have a, a game design company in New York City. And um, one of the sort of unexpected uh, practices we've had 
we've been designing games for six years, and one of the weird tangents it's gone off on in the last six months is, is that everybody from financial services to consumer packaged goods to sneaker companies all call out of the blue and want to know how game mechanics uh, can be put to use uh, in whatever it is that they're doing. Um, and, uh, and we have a lot of answers to that because a lot of the things that um, behavioral economists are thinking about are things that game designers have been thinking about for a long time, which is how to, how to, how to account for and, and build towards fundamentally irrational behavior. Um, uh, and, and I guess, I guess the question is, is I, um, one question is, uh, do you have any sense of why that's happening right now? Like, like what is it that's, that's brought game mechanics to the front of mind of a lot of people who haven't been thinking about it, you know, and or why it was never a consideration earlier, right? I, I mean, I don't know which of those it is, but, it, but just suddenly uh, this is sort of what er everyone sees this as the silver bullet, that this is the, the new usability is game mechanics, right? Um, so I just wondered. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that I would guess that it's because your number of units sold have gone up by a factor of 10. I mean, it's just so much more visible. I mean, it is pretty sunny. I heard a <clears throat> an interesting, I won't, I won't attribute it because I don't know if you'd want me to attribute it, but I heard an interesting hypothesis that, you know, in this latest um, recession, we have seen a large rise in um, uh, youth non-employment. But we haven't seen what we normally see when there's a rise in youth non-employment, which is crime. Which is pretty stunning. Normally when youth get unemployed, the thing they do is they go out and start doing stuff that we don't like them to do. And one hypothesis I've heard is, um, you guys, video games. Yeah. It's hard to engage in crime when you're sitting there playing with your Wii. Um, <laughs> so I think the rise of video games is transformative. I don't, maybe that has been the reason that people have started paying more attention to it. Over here. Thanks. Um, my name's Terry Feely, and I'm a consultant in San Francisco. I work on education and asset building issues, uh, mostly for the working poor. And I've been involved in a project that's been informed heavily by behavioral economics. Um, the idea is that the city would open a college savings account for any child who enrolls in a public kindergarten program. It's called Kindergarten to College. Hmm. Um, and, of course, the idea being that not only are we getting them over the financial barrier of opening the account, um, but we're also getting them through that sort of psychological and just the paperwork barrier. Um, interestingly, where we've been getting pushback, um, or one of the areas we've been getting pushback around, has been um, some of the financial regulations um, and the concern that, in fact, we're not offering su sufficient choices and information um, to these individuals as we try to opt them, uh, have them opt out of a program rather than opt into it. And so I was interested to hear that you'd been doing some consulting work for government agencies at the federal level, and I was wondering if this kind of issue of paternalism and, and choice has been coming up in those discussions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the delicate balance between actually, I mean, it's, the power of default is so big, it's easy to default people into something that's bad for them. I mean, we all know this. This is what some companies do to us when they say, do you want to have a free trial of something? Just give us your credit card. Well, at the end of the 30 days, you're defaulted into the thing and you make, so it is a very delicate issue and I don't think we have much of a, quite a handle on that yet. And I would just say one thing, which is, there are other tools available besides defaults which don't suffer from this problem. And we might, you might want to look to some of those tools, and that's often been the approach that we've kind of taken. 
Yeah, and I would like to add to that one because I think um, San Francisco has been extraordinary in terms of the the expectations, the culture, and just the kind of city that um, Mayor Newsom has helped spearhead that uh, it, it can be and be an incredible leader. And one of the things that, that the foundation we've worked with and we've engaged Sundell a bit and others is around children's de- um, savings accounts. Exactly. And, and starting to save. Ex- exactly. And, and looking in places like now Mississippi and how might we partner with an entity like Southern Bancorp, which is a leading community development financial institution, so that every child in San Francisco or Mississippi, whether it's $500, even 100 at birth, has a college count because it's not at that point about the money. It's about the expectation that this child will go to college. Yeah. In fact, just to add to that, the, the research is that regardless of the amount of resources in a savings account, a child who knows that they have a college savings account opened on their behalf is seven times more likely to go into post-secondary education. And so I think there's also this piece about the behavioral, how we're also thinking about expectations and, and how we are making commitments at the system level and at whether it's schools, charter schools that start their day off of where you're going to college, just a lot of these sort of shifting mindsets and the policies that support underneath. Your turn. Hi, I'm Nalini Saligram, and I've started a um, public health nonprofit organization called Arogya, and we're working on diabetes prevention through lifestyle changes in India. And even though there's clinical proof that um, exercise and diet can prevent, if not, or at least delay the onset of diabetes, it's been really difficult to get people to take up exercise and diet. Um, So I just was wondering if you can provide some insights into why it's so challenging and what can we we do to uh, get people to exercise and diet. I mean, I think these type of problems are common everywhere beyond diabetes. Behavioral change is very difficult. And what often helps me, clocky really helps me, which is uh, I think about, it really does. I, I think about whether the problem is one of intention or one of translating intention to action. And these are very different situations. If what we have is a population that wants to do the behavior, they say, yes, I want to eat differently. I want to work out more. That's a different situation because now what we know is it's hard for anybody. Everybody in this room probably wants to work out more and eat better than they are. And so the intention to action problem is solved very differently than the creation of intention problem. And that distinction has been very helpful for me because when I'm talking about creation of intention, I'm thinking about persuasion and how you put the problem back into the mental model that people already have. When I'm thinking about intention to action, I'm thinking of creating mechanisms like clocky that allow people to more effectively translate their intention to action. For example, people have found, um, this is pretty funny, but people have found that if you allow people to set up like a commitment device where they put $50 into a box, and if they don't quit smoking, they lose the $50. People will take up such commitment devices, and it'll help them quit smoking. Now, you can imagine ramping this up with diabetes. You can say, well, why don't you get the rest of the family involved and form a family commitment device? And everybody in the family has put in a little bit of money. And if you don't match your weight loss goal, everybody loses the money. Now the family is incentivized, everyone's incentivized. So there are ways you can create these things, but the intention has to be there, which is a different problem. Um, Well, I really, if you all will join me in thanking Sendel for the time here today. And all of the good work he and his network are doing to really bring a new kind of perspective, sense of possibility in the worlds of policy, philanthropy, and leaders like yourself. So thanks a lot for coming.